If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The sound that you're listening to, the device that you're listening on, and the cells in both the ear that you're using to listen and the brain that understands these words have at least one thing in common. They represent the consumption of or transference of energy. The same goes for your eyes if you're reading a transcript of this. The waves in the ears are pressure waves, while eyes receive information in the form of radiant energy, but they are both still called energy. But what is energy? Energy is a scalar quantity measured in dimensions of force times distance, and the role that energy plays depends on the dynamics of the system. So what is the difference between potential and kinetic energy? How can understanding energy simplify problems? And how do we design a roller coaster in frictionless physics land? All of this and more on this episode of Breaking Math. Episode 76, do you pay for this? I'm Sophia, and you're listening to Breaking Math. Uh, with me, we have on the host of Nerd Forensics, another Santa Fe Trail Media podcast, Millicent Oriana. Millie, welcome. Oh, it's great being on here again. Um, and for those of you that listen to, uh, to Breaking Math and haven't heard Nerd Forensics yet, give it a listen. We have talks about everything, history, video games, nerd culture in general, wrestling. Oh, yeah. It's a really varied uh, podcast. We have about uh, how many episodes out do you have? We have 24 episodes now. Yeah, 24 episodes of various kinds. So yeah, go take a listen. It is uh, more explicit. It's marked explicit. But um, if you like the kind of humor that we have on this podcast, I think there's a chance that you'll like the kind of humor that there will be on that podcast. So yeah, um, go check it out. Give that a listen. And we also have on Ariana Luna Rosa. Ariana, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So Ariana, the podcast today is about energy and you work with, um, you know, a form of energy in a way, uh, electricity. Uh, do you want to talk about your relationship to electricity? Um, that's right. I'm a licensed electrician and I also teach in an electrical apprenticeship program. Cool, cool. So um, we're going to talk about a bunch of different forms of energy. Uh, but first, I want to plug uh, the fact that um, we got a new poster coming out very soon. We're in talks with uh, printers. It's about different types of new, uh, numeral and numeric systems throughout the world. Um, has uh, about five different ones that it goes through, and it's a lot of fun um, if you like that kind of thing, which you're listening to this podcast, so you do. And um, you can follow us on social media, facebook.com slash Breaking Math Podcast. You could also follow us on Twitter at Breaking Math Pod, or you could go to our Patreon and donate. Dollar, donate. If you, donate. If you donate a dollar or more, you'll get an ad-free version of the episode. And uh, if you are wondering where the second interview went uh, from that uh, from that uh, from that last episode on graphics, uh, we interviewed somebody for an episode, but we forgot to press record, so we're regrouping on that series. But stay tuned. 
All right, so quick rundown. Uh, we're going to be talking about a quick review of calculus. We're going to uh, be going through a few concepts related to energy, uh, going through a few problems, and um, having a general discussion about energy. So is everybody ready? We're ready. All right, so we're going to start off with a little quick review of calculus. If you've heard us review calculus before, because we've done that on a few episodes of the show, we're going to play this music. And uh, if you pass forward to the end of the music, we'll be done talking about our review of calculus. That said, we're going to be talking about it in a way that's relevant to this episode, so it might be worth sticking around. All right, so calculus. So um, a function is something that takes something or a few things in and spits something out. So uh, a doubling function, when applied to the number three, would yield what? Six. Six. Yep, and a function that adds three to something when you plug in four would get what? We would get seven. Yeah, and we can write this like f with parentheses uh, uh, four equals seven, where f of x is equal to x plus three. So that's how we could do that, um, where x is just like, you know, thing. Um, so then we have a scalar, which is a magnitude. So like three is a scalar. Uh, give me an example of a scalar. 42. So, negative eight, etc. You know, 3.7. So uh, it's just like, you know, a, a, a number, a natural number is a type of uh, scalar. Other types of scalars are uh, re real numbers. There's all sorts of things like that. All right, then we got a vector. And a vector is uh, something that has direction and a magnitude to it. So um, the wind speed on a certain piece of Earth uh, could be a vector. For example, you have the direction of the wind and how fast the wind is going, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see, another, more examples of vectors. Uh, um, temperature would also be a vector, I assume? Actually, temperature would be a scalar because a temperature doesn't have a direction. Ah. But you can say that the flow of heat is a, is a vector because, you know, heat, if heat flows from a cold source to a warm source, you could have the vector pointing from cold to hot in the, with, it, with, with a magnitude that corresponds to how quickly heat is transferring. Uh, but yeah, can you, either of you think of more examples of vectors, uh, possible vectors? Um, really good example of vectors I'm familiar with is in the electrical field. We describe electricity as having a voltage level and an angle when we get into advanced AC theory. Oh yeah, that, and that's another uh, thing about vectors is that a lot of times you, uh, they're used to you know measure things in uh, multi-dimensional quantities because uh, you said current and voltage, right? Um, voltage, yes, and current. And current times voltage is what? That would be watts. Uh, Millie, can you think of an example of a vector? Absolutely. Uh, almost every sport uses vectors, whether it be where your punches are aimed or where a ball is going, a pelota, a puck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you need to know where. Yeah, the vector from the ball ball coming in. It turns out that if you take them, if you take the momentum vector of the ball coming in, and you add the force vector, I mean the the momentum ve uh, vector of like the momentum transferred from like you know the ball or the pelota thing or the you know uh, whatever puck, puck. Yeah, you get the resultant motion, uh, or specifically you get the combination of the resultant motion and what happens to you. So yeah, that's another vector quantity, absolutely. Um, another vector quantity would be like, uh, if you've ever seen one of those um, elevation maps, have either of you seen those elevation maps with the different ridges on them? Yes. Oh, definitely, I'm a bit of a hiker. Oh yeah, so a vector would point in the direction of the ascent in the magnitude of the steepness of that ascent. I assume that a textured globe also has vectors on it. 
Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, textured globe. Uh, the, let's see the vector. Um, yeah, the vector. In that case, you know, you can do the slope with respect to the um, what's called the normal between the surface of the ideal ball. You know, like if it were smooth, and uh, the slope that it does have. Mm, and also, of course, the distance between bare, uh, bodies of land. Well, the distance between bodies of land, you could point from one body of land to the other with a vector um, that corresponds to a line segment, but the distance itself would be a scalar. Specifically, it's something that doesn't point. You know, if, if something can be measured in like, you know, like uh, feet or like, you know, like... Uh... So the, here's a good, here's a really good way to compare the two. Uh, speed is a scalar while velocity is a vector. Because speed, if you go backwards, right, you're, you're, if you go backwards at 10 miles an hour, you're still going 10 miles an hour, right? If you go forward at 10 miles an hour, you're going 10 miles an hour. Uh, but if you but if you look at velocity, if you reverse and you're going 10 miles an hour, you're going negative 10 miles an hour. Uh, so it's a, you, the direction actually mat it matters in a vector specifically. Okay then. So uh, cool. The, um, sounds like everybody's up to speed on vectors. So now derivatives. Uh, derivatives are a rate of change with respect to some variable. So uh, for example, miles per hour. Um, uh, the miles per hour is no no. So for example, speed is the derivative of position uh, over time. So that so basically the amount that somebody's position changes over a period of time is their speed. Um, does that make sense intuitively? Yes. yes. Yeah, and so the derivative, it, the derivative is like if you took sm like how fast I was going like right now and how fast I was going in one, one, one infinityth of a second, so to speak, and divided it by the amount of time uh, that elapsed, which is what that one infinity of a second, and then we get a number. Of course, we can't actually do that, so we use a com uh, concept called limits, where we do like, okay, what's the, what's the time here versus the time five minutes from now? And then it's like, okay, now we reduce it to one second, then half a second, and then so forth. And then mathematically, that gives us uh, derivatives. Um, for anybody interested, the mathematical formula is limit. As some variable h approaches zero, of f of x plus h, that is to say the function one teeny little bit above x minus f of x, meaning, so the difference between those two, all divided by h, or the um, amount that the variable has changed, um, and you just solve that. If you, and uh, we go back to the mountain example, the um, derivative of the elevation, specifically what's called the gradient, since it's a two-dimensional function, right? You got like uh, latitude and longitude, right? Yes. Right. Yeah, so if you take the height, um, the derivative of the height, I mean, the, the gradient of the height uh, with respect to uh, the field, uh, d uh, you know, d the disc, what's called, uh, we could call it um, d horizontal and d vertical or dh and dv or something. d just meaning tiny little, um, it, tiny little like, uh, almost like derivation. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but it's like a um, little change in x. The derivative of elevation and with respect to the planar coordinates gives a mountain slope, which we were talking about earlier. So uh, the this this is a case where the gradient, uh, which is the type of derivative, gives a vector from something that was a scalar. Because height is a scalar, right? Does that make sense? Yes. And then we have partial deri derivatives. So back to our mountain example, if we want to see how fast the mountain uh, height increases, if we go straight to the left, um, or straight to the right, you know, straight horizontal, straight vertical, that would be a partial derivative with respect to the vertical or the horizontal. Does that make sense? 
Yes. Yes. So we also have the what's called the product rule and the chain rule. Uh, just to quickly cover those, the product rule says that the, the derivative of two functions multiplied together is equal to the derivative of the, of the first times the second plus the derivative of the second times the first. And then the chain rule means that if we take the function of another function and take the derivative of all of that with respect to the inner variable, that is equal to the derivative of the inside times the derivative of the outside of the inside unchanged. And then finally we have the integral. So um, let's say at zero seconds, right, we're going, um, we're, we're stopped, right, in our car. And then at one second, we're going uh, two miles an hour, two seconds, we're going four miles an hour, three seconds, we're going six miles an hour, and so forth. How can we use this information to find out how far we've gone? You'd measure speed and time. Yeah, you'd multiply. Distance. Exactly. And, uh, and distance is speed times time. Uh, does, is that apparent to everybody? Yes. Yeah, so like, you know, 20 miles an hour times half an hour would be 10 miles, obviously. So yeah, you, you, could, you would do that. You would sum it up um, over these tiny little intervals, right? And if you decrease the size of the intervals to basically zero to like one over infinity or, you know, the uh, dx or whatever, if we're using the x variable would be a better way to say it, we get what's called the integral, um, specifically the Riemannian integral. We won't talk about the Lebesgue integral here. But um, the integral of velocity with respect to time is position. That is to say, the summing up of velocity with respect to chunks of time is equal to the position traveled. Does that make sense to everybody? That makes yes. sense. Uh, so um, what would the, let's see, what would the integral of the rate of weight loss of somebody over time give us? Their current weight? Uh, the current difference in weight from when you started and when you ended because you know it's about uh, change so that is an important thing about integral is that it is uh, sometimes is that um, when you integrate you have to know where you start when you're in not where you start when you're in but at least where you start and uh, let's see what would the what would the integral of the number one be with uh, respect to x being if you have x y and z being three per, uh, perpendicular coordinates like my hand right here Mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. If we have the integral of X going from zero to two, Y going from zero to two, and Z going from zero to two, what would the integral of all of that be? Does anyone even have a hazard one. guess? Well, one is uh, one is the um, the constant value of things within it. But uh, in, weirdly enough, you're on the right track because what we have to consider is the integral. It, it, the integral, since it's constant, if we have the amount of area in every, because obviously we're describing a box, right? Yes. So the if we're talking about summing up, uh, what we're talking about is the volume of the box. So if the integral from x goes from zero to two, y goes from zero to two, and z goes from zero to two, uh, what would be the total volume of the box or the integral over the space? Well, that would be eight units. Yep, because two times two times two. Yeah, zero to two being the, you know two across. That makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. All right, cool. And um, and as y'all noticed, uh, when you do derivatives, uh, like your derivative with uh, distance with respect to time, meters with respect to seconds is meters per second, meters divided by seconds. Whereas you know the um, the derivative of meters per second with respect to time with respect to seconds is meters to seconds times seconds. So you multiply the units with the integral and you divide the first unit by the second with the derivative. And uh, there's, it's really hard to do integration uh, closed form compared to derivation. Derivation is straightforward for basically any function. There are some functions that uh, integrals are not known for. 
but they can always be approximated. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So now we're going to jump into energy finally. Um, so we have a quote here from the Feynman Lectures, which can be found on Caltech's website. Um, Ariana, would you read this block for us? I would love to. Imagine a child, perhaps Dennis the Menace, who has blocks which are absolutely indestructible and cannot be divided into pieces. Each is the same as the other. Let us suppose that he has 28 blocks. His mother puts him with his 28 blocks into a room at the beginning of the day. At the end of the day, being curious, she counts the blocks very carefully and discovers a phenomenal law. No matter what he does with the blocks, there are always 28 remaining. This continues for a number of days until one day there are only 27 blocks, but a little investigating shows that there is one under the rug. She must look everywhere to be sure that the number of blocks has not changed. One day, however, the number appears to change. There are only 26 blocks. Careful investigation indicates that the window is open and upon looking outside, the other two blocks are found. Another day, careful count indicates that there are 30 blocks. This causes considerable consternation until it is realized that Bruce came to visit bringing his blocks with him and he left a few at Dennis's house. After she has disposed of the extra blocks, she closes the window, does not let Bruce in, and then everything is going all right until one time she counts and finds only 25 blocks. However, there is a box in the room, a toy box, and the mother goes to open the toy box, but the boy says, no, do not open my toy box, and screams. Mother is not allowed to open the toy box. Being extremely curious and somewhat ingenious, she invents a scheme. She knows that a block weighs three ounces, so she weighs the box at a time when she sees 28 blocks, and it weighs 16 ounces. The next time she wishes to check, she weighs the box again, subtracts 16 ounces, and divides by three. She discovers the following. The number of blocks seen plus the weight of the blocks minus 16 ounces divided by 3 ounces is constant. So yeah, so what this is talking about is all the different forms of energy in the system, right? Um, we have um, kinetic, en kinetic energy, for example, uh, which is the amount of energy there is in a moving thing. Um, and it's equal to one half times the mass times the uh, speed times the velocity squared and uh, the square of the velocity is always going to be a, uh, a scalar because uh, when, um, specifically when you square um, a vector in a lot of equations basically the length of the vector and this is th this whole constant deal is um, is an issue with potential energy and kinetic energy or the other energy in a system so um, does anyone want to say what potential energy is. Um, Millie, what's potential energy? Potential energy is the, uh, is the possible, uh, the outcome of, uh, of the, uh, uh, consumption energy, right? Well, specifically it's, um, it, it, it does relate to the, to the outcome, uh, but what it is, is it's how much energy you could kind of, um, produce, sorry. 
Yeah, it's like how much you could. Yeah, exactly. It's how much you could kind of extract um, in a specific instance. So, for example, gravitational uh, potential energy says how much uh, kinetic energy you can get out of something that is falling um, in, you know, near Earth's surface. And so, like, you know, the higher it is, the more potential energy that there is, right? Yes. Because, like, you know, the higher it is, the more potential there is for it to fall for, uh, faster um, and so forth. And we'll show that we'll show why kinetic energy is uh, one half mass times velocity squared. Uh, potential energy near the surface of the Earth is uh, mass times the gravitational constant times the height. For two bodies uh, further apart from one another, the uh, it changes because you know the further you get away from the Earth, the less the gravity is, right? Yes. Right. Uh, you have electrical energy, which is produced by electron flow across a wire. Um, build often in kilowatt hours, which is 3.6 megajoules. We'll be talking about joules and things later. We also have other forms of energy, such as the strong force. And uh, as we'll see in a second, um, the way that you can manipulate a system can tell you a lot about the energy. Um, but uh, before we jump into all that, let me just have a quick little talk about thermodynamics. So in any real process, uh, energy is lost, right? There's no such thing as a... Uh, as a uh, perpetual motion machine. Um, yes, that's it's impossible. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, because all right, so yeah, energy is always lost in any real process, right? So we're going to talk about like, you know, let, let's let's think about an example so of like when friction would be like a hindrance. So let's talk about a system where any slowdown would be a hindrance. So let's talk about a swing, right? So when you swing, you pull somebody up and they have a certain gravitational potential energy, right? Yes. Right. And as they swing to the bottom, that gravitational potential energy turns into what? Uh, velocity. Velocity through uh, kinetic energy. Yeah. Because kinetic energy corresponds to velocity. But yeah. yeah, so it goes from potential to kinetic. Then uh, when they go to up to the other side of the swing, what's happening to the energy? Uh, it's transferring the opposite direction. Yeah, it's transferring from kinetic back to uh, potential. Is that what you meant? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so why, does it, why is it that if you, when you push somebody on a swing... That you have to ever give them a second push, uh, because of the fact that eventually the, uh, no matter how like how like how well balanced they are, it will stop swinging. It can't continuously swing. Oh yeah, but let's but remember we uh, we were talking about energy neither, neither created nor destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. So where where does the energy go? Uh, it goes into the one into the chains, and that creates friction, which helps to slow it down. Mm hmm. Two, it goes into uh, um, it. It gets dissipated through uh, wind resistance. That too. And three, a lot of it goes into the ground because your feet usually drag across the sand as you go through the swing. Oh yeah, that's another. Uh, that's another um, play. And then, why doesn't the sound sand bounce around forever? Well, because the the more friction, like, or the more resistance, the slower you start to go. Oh, yeah, but specifically and, the sand that you kick and you lose energy on, mm -hmm. the energy that that sand gains, where does that go? Uh, how come the sand doesn't bounce around forever? Oh, because it eventually just uh, it hits the ground and it slows down and the rest of the uh, sand around it absorbs the energy. Yeah, mm -hmm. the rest of the sand absorbs it. And then um, and uh, can you think of any other ways that the system loses energy? Well, we definitely see energy loss in electrical systems over um, the distance of conductors. Specifically for this example. Oh, for in this example? Yeah. Um, 
what I see in this example is that, yeah, the um, individual little grains of sand influence all the other little grains of sand and give, give a little push to every piece they encounter. And eventually that energy has just been dissipated throughout the system. Exactly. And let's see what other ways could energy be lost, uh, lost by the system, uh, the swinging system. Uh, can you think of any more? Entropy. Well, what specifically entropy is, is, the, is it's a measure of the amount of uh, useful energy that you cannot get out of a system in a way. Uh, we're going to talk about that, I think, on our on next episode. Um, you know, we're going to do a little thing about thermodynamics, uh, probably. So, yeah, what entropy is, is like, you know, the amount of disorder in a system. So uh, something with a really high amount of entropy or maximum entropy can get no useful work extracted for it. And we're going to talk about the, how, use, how, how work is used in this. But I'll give you all a hint. Uh, can you hear somebody on the swing? Yes. Yes. So we're talking about uh, sound energy, which is uh, in, in measuring pressure waves. And pressure itself is the amount of kinetic energy uh, collisions that are happening in a specific amount of space, right? Because the more kinetic energy collisions are in a specific amount of space, it's like, you know, if I throw one billiard ball at a window versus throwing, a, um, you know, b barrels of billiard balls at a window. Uh, by the way, I, that's where I got all my new things. Oh, yeah. And we, we, there's also other ways that the system could lose energy. For example, um, you know, the, why doesn't this, the chain get so hot that it's burning after a while when somebody's been swinging on it? No, well, because I mean that would take a lot of friction to do. Oh yeah, but why? Why does why does the chain ever get cooler at all? Like why doesn't let why doesn't after a year it turn like glowing red hot? Well, because it has the energy has to go somewhere. It doesn't just stay in the metal. Oh yeah, but technically, like theoretically, it it it, uh, it it could with some kind of exotic weird matter. Like it doesn't technically violate any law of uh, phys uh, physics except for like you know the you know no uh, that ever that the change of entropy is always greater than zero or the change in energy is always less than zero or whatever. But um, actually what the reason why is because uh, heat is radiated in uh, what's called black body radiation. So um, when you uh, heat something so hot, it gets red hot. Um, that's uh, the energy uh, radiating outward. You also have uh, convection, you know, like the wind taking away uh, heat uh, and the heat is dissipated also into the air around the chain. Yeah. So yeah, so that, that's that's where that energy goes. And uh, the, and as for sound energy, um, you know, that's just dissipated in the same way as heat, and then as light, and then as heat and light, and you know, it, it, everything keeps bouncing back and forth, you know, over and over again. So, I mean, you can hear the echoes of the chain on a loud swing in some parks, right? Yes. Right. So work is force times distance. So um, the amount of work that you put into something is uh, related directly to the amount of energy that it uses. So the first force times distance thing is like, you know, let, let's say that you get a blue whale and you put it on top of a, you put it at the end of a very, very sturdy seesaw. Um, how could you, you, how could you lift up that uh, killer whale using just your body? Uh, if you had a, if you had a good enough uh, pulley, and uh, or a, like a good enough lever system. Oh yeah, but we got a lever. We got a seesaw lever. Well, we'd need a super long lever. Yeah, we'd need an incredibly long one then. Yeah, and it would be short on the other side, right, where the right. whale is. Mm. And we would have to travel a lot further than the whale, right? We would have to mm. like go down like a mile for it to go up, like uh, not that uh, probably a couple uh, feet, probably a few feet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we'd need an incredibly long one then. Yeah, and it would be short on the other side, right, where the right. whale is. Mm. And we would have to travel a lot further than the whale, right? We would have mm. to like go down like a mile for it to go up, like uh, 
not that uh, probably a couple a, feet probably a few feet yeah. yeah let me look this up real quick yeah it turns out you're exactly right two feet <laughs> for every mile that we go down on a lever wow and um yeah and the reason uh, and so work is the force times the distance so so remember when we said earlier that the gravitational um, potential energy is mass times the gravitational constant times height? Yeah. Uh, the mass is measured in kilograms, and the gravitational constant is an acceleration constant. It's meters per second squared. So you have the quantity kilogram meters per second squared, or newtons. So then you take the mass times gravity and multiply it by the height, you get units of work, or force times distance. Now if you notice, these are the same units as energy, right? Right. Correct. And uh, they are intrinsically linked uh, together. So basically, the work energy theorem states this, that the amount of work that it takes to do something corresponds directly to the amount of energy that it takes to undo it or vice versa. Well, so for example, the potential energy between two magnets, like let's say we have two positive sides of, the ma of a magnet that are in a tube, right? And yes. if you push them together, they're going to uh, resist it, right? Yes. So if we start with them infinitely far apart from one another and we give them a very small push, we would not need a very small push to get it started moving at all. So we would move infinitely slowly. But let's say we do it like, you know, a little closer, obviously, although we do use the first form uh, in the integral form because you can integrate from negative infinity to infinity or zero to infinity sometimes. Um, so if we push these together, it takes a certain amount of uh of force and that force increases as you get them close together, right? Yes. Right. So if you take if you take how much force you're pushing at each measurement of distance, so like two feet, two point uh, one point nine feet, etc., and you add them all together, but you do it infinitely slowly, you'll get infinitely many. You'll get the potential energy between two magnets in a tube. Okay. And uh, the, so now for gravitational potential energy, it's it's similar. So if we need to if we need to hold something, so. Uh, hold this. How much force are you applying on that right now? Uh, uh, up. How much upward force? Mm, say about 16, 17 ounces. Yeah, 16, 17 ounces worth, which which it technically we'd be measuring the force in slugs, but nobody does that. Everybody just uses pounds um, because American units are a mess. And honestly, this is an international podcast, so I should be using metric more often. But, um, yeah, you're applying force to resist uh, gravity's force, right? Yeah. So now if you, now when you lift, uh, now lift it at a constant speed uh, for a couple of seconds. Now you lifted it about, uh, let's say, uh, two feet, right? Yeah, about. So the amount of uh, work that you do in that case would be since it's, uh, about, let's just round that to a pound, two foot pounds of, uh, of energy. Hmm. Um, and of course, you do have to convert the units, but a better way to do it would be um, you lift it about a meter and it's about half a kilogram. So uh, that's uh, half a kilogram times uh, times the acceleration due to gravity is uh, acceleration due to gravity is about 10 meters per second squared. It's 9.81. Uh, but uh, so what's uh, 10 meters per second squared times uh, one times one meter times half a kilogram. So that would give us five. Yeah, so um, five joules is what it took. What it took you to uh, to um, lift it that distance. I don't use a joule. I use a regular e cig. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't smoke, kids. All right, yeah. And the kinetic energy formula works a lot like this too. So let's say we're in a in a car, and let, let's say we accelerate at a constant acceleration. 
That is to say, you know, the speedometer is moving like at a constant speed, right? Up. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when we're moving slowly, we're pretty close to the starting point, right? Yeah. But the faster we move, the further we get away. And the fast, like, so, so the distance between zero and 10 miles an hour is going to be a lot less than the, the distance when, between you're going 40 and 50, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. If we want to measure how much kinetic energy something has, we could measure how much uh, energy it takes to uh, stop it or how much work it takes to stop it. So if we measure how much distance it takes to stop it, the distance is, would be one half times the acceleration times the time squared, which is equal to the velocity squared over two times the acceleration. Uh, so in that time, the work that we've done turns out to be wor work, which is force times distance, which in this case is mass times acceleration times distance, which turns into mass times acceleration times the velocity squared over two times acceleration. And since you're dividing acceleration by acceleration, you end up with the familiar and famous formula, uh, work uh, energy equals one half NB squared because work is uh, proportional to energy. Any questions? No, I think I'm good. No. Oh, yeah, and similarly, the gravitational potential energy of something is how much energy you would slam into the... Well, the gravitational potential energy of an object on, on the Earth with respect to uh, just the rest of space um, is how far, how fast it would take... Uh, how fast an object would be going when it hits the Earth. Uh, if you start... If you take the object infinitely far away from the Earth, remove everything else from the, uh, from the universe. And uh, does anybody want to guess how fast something would slam into the Earth if they... Uh, Start it infinite if it started infinitely far away. I mean, would it be infinitely it would fast? Be infinitely fast, yeah. Turns out it's not infinitely fast, actually. Oh, it would be right below the speed of light because it can go any faster than the speed of light. And actually, not even close to that. Believe it or not, it's the escape velocity of an object on Earth, or like about seven miles per second. Well, let me do get that exactly. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, so it's a, it'll it would be about forty thousand kilometers per hour or twenty five thousand miles per hour. Um. And the reason, and the reason why it's not infinite, is because it's not accelerating at a constant acceleration the entire time. When it's infinitely far away from the Earth, there's, it's technically there's no acceleration on it. It can never, it can never start reaching the Earth. But because we're, you know, we're in Zeno, in Zeno land, um, you know, derivative funny infinity land, we can do that. And escape velocity is how fast something has to be going at the surface of the Earth to escape the Earth's gravity. But I was surprised too when I first heard this. I thought it was going to be. I, I remember calculating it myself. I remember saying, "Okay, like, uh, like you know, what would it be? Would it be infinite?" And then I was like, "Oh no, it's that." And it turned out that it was also related to a couple of other concepts, which we'll cover on probably like an orbital mechanics podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. So let's say I have uh, two weights. Uh, we don't know how much they weigh yet. 
and we have a triangle. The triangle is three high, four across, and five um, across the uh, and five on the diagonal. Uh, everybody have that? Yep. All right. So how heavy would the weights have to be so that they balance each other? And this is a frictionless uh, slide, obviously. So no energy is lost to anything. The energy is all just balancing out with one another. So how heavy would the weight on the left and right hand side have to be with, you know, with, with respect to one another or whatever? I would assume that the weight on the right would have to be about at least a third smaller than the weight on the right. I mean, the weight on the left. That's yeah. a good guess. I'm thinking that they have to be the same weight because regardless of the slope, it's still the same force of gravity. All right, so now let's do a thought experiment. All right, so the, these these um these are in equilibrium. So, what happens when let's say that we have this uh this tot right, and let's say we we're holding on to the right, um the right uh, weight right, and let's say we pull that weight one unit down the horizontal. Um, how far how far will the block on the left go up if we pull the string on the right by one unit? And this is frictionless. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And but right now we're just dealing with pretty much the geometry of it, because we're talking uh, like specifically if I if I have it like gripped and I'm pulling yeah. it down by one unit, it would move it up one unit then. Yeah, correct. And that is that apparent, Ariana? Yes. But how how far down will the block on the right have gone if it moves across the diagonal one unit? Um, if it moves on its own. Uh, no, no. If we move it or whatever, just one unit. Well, it it'll, it will go to one unit on um, diagonally, but I mean specifically vertically up and down the way that gravity is pulling. So let me diagram this but, out a little more. That would be three fifths of a unit, right? Uh, yeah, right. Because it, because going down one unit uh, brought us down one fifth of the way, right? Mm. And then, but we know that. Uh, so if we divide by five on that side, we get the height, which would be three fifths. So yeah, this, it would be right there about, right? If we dragged it one unit from the edge. Yeah. And this would go up a whole unit though. But the thing is, they have to balance each other out. So to balance each other out, they have to have uh, the same amount of, uh, they, they have to uh, have the same amount of potential energy with respect to one another, right? Yes. Right. So the one on, if they weigh the same and we move the one on the right um, up one unit, and the one on the bottom uh, and the one on the side moves down even further than one unit, it'll just keep pulling it um, to the side. Yeah. So it turns out that the, it turns out that let's say the weight on the left is a five pound weight. The one on the right would be a three pound weight. Yes. Does that make sense? Okay. And then they balance out. Yeah. Um, it, but there's even a better proof of this. Uh, do y'all want to see a proof in a picture? Sure. sure. Yeah. This is the uh, we're looking at the image that's on the uh, cover for the episode. So check it out. Uh, these balls weigh the exact same amount. Now, will the will the balls move one way or the other? No, they won't. Yeah, and they and they they can't because they can't because the the balls on the bottom balance each other out on each side, right? There's seven. There's one in the, exactly in the middle and three on either side. So it's not pulling the ones on the on the top either way, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. And the ones on the top are just uh, resting as they are. Yes. Correct. 
So yeah, that's that's uh, it's uh, that's how it turns out. You solve that um, using just pictures, but you have the same concepts going on. I mean, you have um, the the you have the energy on uh, on both sides of the the chain. You know, like if the chain were unbalanced, so that we had two weights on one side, and then like you know the weights were way heavier on the other side, it would pull the chain down so that the heavy weights were on the bottom. Kind of like you know if you take a heavy necklace and you put it on your shoulder, it could fall down uh, uh, to your chest. Yes, makes sense. It also turns out that a rope, you know, you could just do this with rope. Like, you know, if you have a heavy rope that's frictionless, you know, some kind of amazing frictionless heavy rope. Although I don't think that'd actually be useful for knots. But yeah, you just have to drape it across uh, all the all the way up and all the way across, or have an equal proportion of both sides. And as long as the two bottoms are touch it, are at the same elevation, it'll balance itself out. All right. And this is the same principle as how those old school scales work. <laughs> Alrighty, so this is the basic setup. We have a frictionless loop-de-loop, -loop, imagine made out of like, you know, the slipperiest ice in the world. Um, and then slipperier than that. Uh, we have, we're on the moon or something, so there's no air resistance. Uh, you know, the only thing we care about is uh, kinetic energy and uh, gravitational potential energy. Is that clear? Clear. Yes. Yeah, so we go around this loop-de-loop, -loop, and uh, specifically it's just a loop, actually, but I think a loop-de-loop -loop technically has two loops, but... Um, no, loop de loop is just one. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah. yeah so we go uh, we go around a loop de loop, which we're gonna assume is a circle, even though I did not draw a good circle. And uh, yeah, so the question is, how tall can the loop de loop be uh, with respect to the original height? How well can it be like an unlimited number of tall? Like, can it be infinitely tall? Well, specifically, uh, how tall must it be? Oh no! No, how how tall? It, like, let's say that the loop. To, let's say the top of the loop from the floor to uh, where we start. How tall can the loop to loop be compared to that? Oh, the loop compared to the slope. Yeah. They can be the exact same height if there's no friction. And why is that? Because it would use the amount. Uh, it would build up the right, the correct amount of momentum going down the slope that it would need to ascend around the loop if there's no friction or resistance or anything. Yeah, so you're saying that it um, it it, it uh, maintains all the uh, energy it needs. Uh, yeah, they uh, would just need to be equal height. And how about you, Ariana? For some reason, I think it needs to be a little bit less because I'm picturing that if you did halfway through the loop-de-loop -loop at the same height, the ball's going to come to a stop or whatever we have traveling this loop-de-loop. -loop. All right, we'll see. Let's we'll see what the deal is. And the way that we can do that is by um, just kind of starting to plug and chug formulas. Uh, so yeah, so um, let's say, so we're going to do a quick tangent and talk about centrifugal force. So uh, the force is the derivative of, um, is the derivative of the momentum with respect to time. And uh, so basically the way that it happens is if you're going around a circle um, at, with a certain angular velocity, so angular velocity is measured in radians per second. So what that means is um, if something goes two times pi radians per second, it goes around a circle once per second. Because two pi radians is one, is 360 degrees. Yes. Yeah. And pi radians would be what? Uh, that would be the uh, times 3.14 to whatever. Oh, yeah, but specifically, how many degrees would pi radians be? If two pi radians is 360. Uh, 180. Yeah, 180. Yeah, exactly. And um, so, and it was called a radian because uh, it it takes two pi radiuses to go around the circle. So a radius is just a radian. A radian is just one radius wrapped around the circle. And so centrifugal force can be measured in omega in terms of radians per second. And we get the equation uh, that the um, 
that the position of T, if we're just uh, looking for the acceleration, because remember F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so we got position is R times cosine of omega T and R times sine of omega T as a vector X, Y. So the cosine of an angle is how far you are from the center of the angle horizontally uh, at a specific angle. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So at, two, so at um, you know, 45 degrees or pi over, uh, pi over four radians, it would be square root of two over two because if you take something that goes diagonally and hits the circle, it would be square root of two on two on this side, square root of two on this side. And if you multiply those up by themselves, add them together, you get the distance, which is one, you know, one from the center. And you multiply by r because that's the radius. So, um, so then we take the derivative of that, and when you take the derivative of sine and cosine, since it's a function, you take the derivative of the inside and multiply by the outside. You multiply it on the outside, and since it's sine omega times t, and the derivative of omega times t is just omega. Uh, the reason why is because you know it's just the rate. If something is like you know, if something does something like three things per second, then to see how fast you do something, you just have to take how much they've done and divided by the amount of time. Is, uh, is that kind of clear? Yes. Yeah. And then the acceleration is just the derivative of that, which is, uh, ends up being the same thing with negative, and then you end up with negative omega squared times r times cosine of omega t, and the negative omega squared of times r times sine of t. And the magnitude of this um, is uh, going to give us our absolute acceleration, which we can use uh, to measure amount of uh, centrifugal force specifically. And uh, that gives us uh, the square root of those terms uh, together, added together, or square root of quantity negative omega squared r times cosine of omega t and quantity squared plus quantity negative omega squared r times sine omega t and quantity squared uh, and square root, which is equal to omega squared times r or since uh, omega is just equal to velocity divided by radius, because you know it's how many radians you go per second, so velocity divided by radius, it would just be uh, b squared over r. So we're gonna use that in a second. So it's clear uh, it's clear that um, to keep the cart on the track, we're gonna need enough centrifugal force to keep the cart on the track, right? Right. Yes. And how much centrifugal force is that? Well, okay. So the, the so the things so the track's also going to be completely flat. There's nothing keeping the sled like nothing physically keeping the sled on. Um. Yeah. There's no track. There, it's um. It, it's like it's it's like um like an ice slide. Yeah, but there's no barriers on the side or anything like oh, that. Oh no. Like, yeah. I mean, we're we're talking even we're talking that we would do a straight shot so we know it never even touch just, the side. Okay. Yeah. So it just goes down this thing. Um. Well, if there's no resistance whatsoever against it, like we were talking about. Like, it's just this magical ice that's slicker than anything, and there's no gravity. Mm -hmm. It would just need forward momentum with no um, no sort of uh, uh, interference. Right, exactly. And to have that, um, so back to, um, let me just hand you another thing. How much uh, force are you putting on that to keep it in place? Like, I can't even measure it. Oh, yeah, but you're, you're going against a what? Gravity. Yeah, so the, the force of the centrifugal force that we get at the top has to equal uh, the amount of gravitational force on the object. Yeah. Okay, so there is gravity. Like, that was the Oh, other... yeah, yeah, there's gravity. Okay, yeah, that was the other reason I was, like, saying earlier. I actually want to change my answer about the height. Ariana's completely right. It would have to at least be a couple feet higher. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get you now. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah honestly, that's very good physics intuition to not assume anything I didn't tell you. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it made sense why you thought it was a track, too. But, cool, um, let's, uh, let's see, you know, let's see if, if these predictions pan out. So the change in potential energy is the opposite of the change in potential energy, right? Correct. Right. 
And the change in potential energy is the mass times the gravity times the change in height. Makes sense. And uh, and so, and so that so, so that 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 means wherever we are in the, in the height, you know, we could calculate our potential and kinetic energy. Uh, because the kinetic energy is negative mass times the gravity times the change of height, which is just equal to one half mv squared. And since uh, negative, since one half mv squared is equal to that, we just um, divide m by both sides, and we get negative gravitational constant times the change in height is equal to one half times velocity squared. So then we solve that, and we get that the velocity squared is equal to negative two times the gravity times the change in height. And the change of height is equal to the to the uh, initial height over um, height at the top of the loop, right? H top. And um, so now, um, since uh, since we know what the change of height is, we plug that into the formula, and we get that b squared is equal to the square root of 2g times quantity h top minus h n quantity. So now, we're, we're, now since we know about h, right? And h is a circle. If uh, the rate, if this is uh, if this is the total height h h top, what would the radius be? Oh, twice the radius. Yeah, the height is twice the radius. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, because remember, I, I think you might have been thinking of circumference. Uh, yeah, radius, I, am, I am thinking of circumference. Yeah, radius is the distance between the center of the wheel and the outside. So now we plug that in, and we get v top a, a v loop. Um, the velocity that you're going um, around the loop is equal to the square root of two g times h at the top minus two r. So now we have the centrifugal force of the loop is equal to the mass times the velocity of the loop over r, which we calculated earlier, right? Yes. Right. The velocity of the loop squared, which is equal to uh, mg, um, is equal to uh, mg because of what you said earlier, right? Because mg yeah. is the force against gravity. Yes. And by the way, g on like, you know, uh, Jupiter would be 10 times as great as it is here because it's 10 times the gravity. Yes. On uh, the surface of Saturn, Saturn it would be a little bit less than it is here. Uh, Saturn could float in a bathtub, by the way. Um, well, wait, wait a minute. Well, how is it in Dragon Ball Z that the planet that Goku trained on was smaller than Earth, but it had more gravity than us? Are you saying that? No, it isn't. It's just denser. <laughs> oh, okay. Then. <laughs> well, that show still also doesn't have any real science fact in it. So I just wanted to like, you know, be funny. Dragon Ball Z isn't real. Just kidding. No. I've never watched Dragon Ball Z, but oh, it is very ridiculous, but fun. Very fun. Check out the um, anime intro episode on uh, Nerd Forensics. For more fun. Yeah, check out our anime episode. Check out our episode about sports. You people don't just listen to math podcasts. You have other interests. Easy. Don't browbeat the listeners. I am those other interests. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so we, we divide M by both, both sides by M, right? Yes. So now we get velocity of the loop squared divided by R is equal to G. And the velocity of the loop, we already found the equation of that squared. Uh, and that's 2G times H top minus 2R all over r equals g. And then we keep solving that. We divide both sides by g to get uh, 2h top minus 2r all over uh, r equals uh, 1. Uh, we distribute and um, move over the r, and we get 2h top minus 4r equals r. So 2 times h top, being the top of the loop, is equal to 5 times r. So then we finally get the height at the top is... Um, yeah, that sounds right. Oh, yeah, but... So yeah, two, so that means that two fifths of h top, uh, the top of the loop is equal to the height of the uh, the is equal to the radius of the loop to loop, or uh, what that means is that the height of the loop to loop can only be four fifths the height of uh, the entire thing. Mm -hmm. What's cool about that is we didn't have to do integrals. We didn't have to do you know like consider all possible loop to loops. You know we didn't have to do a lot of things. All we had to do is know how much energy required to do this and that. Right. Yes. 
And that's one of the ways that energy can simplify problems uh, significantly. Um, you see this all over the place. I mean, uh, a lot of quantum physics problems are essentially just solving uh, boundary problems with uh, energy. All right, so real quick, we're going to talk about the principle of least action. So action is defined as the integral, remember the sum, from the start to the finish of the difference in kinetic and potential energy over time. And what the principle of least action states, it states that if you don't mess with the system, and the system moves in a specific way, if you move the thing that you're talking about in any different way, it's going to use more energy. Yes. Okay. So as an example of this, uh, dangle your arm by the side of the chair mm -hmm. and uh, let it swing back and forth naturally on its own. It doesn't take any energy, right? At first, the pendulum. Yeah, but then it but, slows down. Oh, yeah, it does slow down. But yeah, to maintain uh, to maintain that um, the frequency, because e each uh, each time it takes the same amount of uh, the same amount of time mm -hmm. and it only slows down and it gets closer, but it takes the same amount of time each time. Now, um, move your arm back and forth, but do it twice as fast and now even faster. As you can hear, there's chair squeaking going on. And uh, the reason why is because it took a lot more energy to go kind of against the natural way of the system, right? Right. Yes. And this is, in, in uh, essence, the principle of least action. And it's what brought um, Newton to, a discussion, uh, to um, his uh, idea of the calculus of variations. Now, what a calc the calculus of variations is, is it's uh, about motivating. So, you know how a function goes from a, ver a variable to, like, another variable? Yeah. Yeah. The function in the function can also be a function. So, for example, the integral is a, is, a, is a function of a function or what's called sometimes a functor uh, because, you know, you take a function and you, uh, you take a function of it and you get a number out, right? And the num that's specifically what a functor is. It gets a number out of a function. Specifically for m taking the minimums of functors, you use the calculus of variations. Uh, Newton was working originally on a problem with uh, minimal drag, but with, like the second problem he ever worked on was something he worked on with a bunch of other people. And he claims he did it in like overnight, but he was known for exaggerating um, for like, he, he was kind of full of himself, honestly. You can't trust everything that Newton says. But it was the brachistochrone problem. Uh, and the, what that problem is about is, let's say we have a, uh, a, uh, a slope and rolling a marble down it. Uh, what shape, you know, we get the marble from the start to the finish uh, the quickest? Uh, round slotted uh, ramp. A round, what is it, what, slotted? Like a round, like a round, like a slide, essentially, like a tube. Oh, yeah, but what's the shape of the tube that would get it there, get, get it from point A over here to point B the quickest? Straight down. How about you, Ariana? What's the quote, quote, passes path? Instinctively, I'd want to say a straight line, but I'm sure that's not correct. And it turns out that it actually isn't correct. Because think about this. If you go down really quickly and then you roll all the way, you're still going to have to roll all this way down. But if you go directly down like this, you're going to be going the same speed, but you don't, might not get the initial oomph from starting out on uh, go, going a, a quicker um, way at the beginning. But you'll build momentum. Exactly. And so what it is, is um, it's, it turns out to be a cycloid. A uh, cycloid being like if we take a wheel and we mark uh, and, we, and we put like a light on a wheel and we watch the shape that it, that it takes as it goes down the freeway, it would look kind of like a bouncing ball. Mm -hmm. um, that's a cycloid. Um, and that's the that's uh, the quickest way between two points is a cycloid. And you could also use this to find areas of minimal revolutions. Um, so, for example, the 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 shape with the small with the smallest surface area for the greatest volume is what um, soap bubbles stretch out to be, uh, because basically the amount of energy that it takes to maintain any other shape uh, takes um, more energy because it has greater surface area, 
And surface tension, you could think of it as like a bunch of people holding hands with like four hands, like, you know, in all directions and pulling. So the less distance they have, the less hard they have to pull, right? Yes. Right. Kind of like cloth, you know, you stretch it, etc. But um, yeah, this is uh, this is how we, uh, oh, functional, not functors. I meant functors. I meant functionals when I meant functors earlier. But uh, yeah, the basic technique we'll uh, talk about on its own episode. But um, essentially, you uh, assume that you ha- you assume that there's some function that is that um, fits your criteria, and then you consider every other function and it has a function that you add to it that we call the error function, and you assume that the error added to the best function would be equal to zero. And using that information, you solve backwards. All right then. It's a very fun. It's a very difficult technique, but wow. extremely rewarding technique. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd have to do it uh, with a scratch piece of paper, probably. I can't just do it in my head, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't do it in my head yet. Yeah. So we could also see this in other applications. So whenever we have a boundary condition, something you need to find the minimum energy for, um, you can find this sort of thing. So the shape of a soap bubble between two rings, uh, for example, um, it, it, have you either of you done that, that experiment? Like, you know, you take a soap bubble at, like, Explorer or something, and you... Um, you pull it out of the water. Well, what you'll find is you'll get you'll get a specific shape. It's not a cylinder. It's a ring. But it's not. It, 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 we won't get a cylinder, and, and it's not even a cylindrical ring. Um, it's uh, if you check it out, you get what's called a a cat a catenoid, um, and a catenoid curve between two. Uh, it kind of goes inward. Yeah, it's like an hourglass. Yeah, a little bit like a like a really loose hourglass. Uh huh. And um, it turns out that uh, that that, that um, curve that you get on either side is um, a, a curve that you would get by hanging a chain between two points. Incidentally, something that you could also solve with the calculus of variations. And yeah, we're going to be talking about this a lot more on a, on a subsequent problem episode. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So what is is Einstein's famous formula for mass and energy? Uh, Energy. What is it? Energy equals mass. God, what is it? Energy equals mass times something. Speed of light light squared. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, um, So that's how much energy, you know, you could theoretically convert a certain amount of mass into. And uh, this equivalence is, um, there's actually a a more nuanced formula. And that's instead of E equals MC squared, it's E squared is equal to momentum times the speed of light, all squared, plus the uh, momentum at rest times the velocity squared. And you square that as well. Um, and uh, you could think about this as the diagonal along uh, something that t- has the rest uh, energy on one side and the momentum on the other. Which incidentally means that the energy that something has also depends on uh, the frame of reference, right? Because a moment, a momentum, if I'm, if I'm in a rocket ship going a million miles an hour and, like, you know, I, uh, and it has artificial gravity and I drop a penny, it's not going to go back at a million miles an hour, right? Yeah. Or if I throw um, a cracker from the back of the car to the front of the car, it's not going uh, to, you know, fly backward or forward, right? Yes. 
So if we can convert energy um, directly, uh, if we can convert mass completely and totally into energy, which is obviously impossible because, you know, there's going to be conversion issues like with any form of energy, uh, we'd be able to power uh, South Korea with only 50 kilograms worth of matter per year. Wow. And if you wow. consider that the ocean is made out of... Uh, so yeah, they, there's sextillions of pounds of uh, water uh, in the ocean. So if we dried up the entire ocean, we could theoretically, if we convert all its energy into mass, power South Korea until the end of the heat death of the universe and beyond. But wouldn't we all just suffocate for South Korea's sake? Oh yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I'm just saying, I, I assume we, if, we, if we're doing all this energy, we could probably mine uh, water from, uh, from that blue cat planet. Well, yeah, I mean, granted, they had plenty of water. That wouldn't have been a problem. Oh, yeah, I know. But, but well, <laughs> well, I'm just saying that, like, you know, that we, we could put a trillion pounds of water into South Korea and it would still last longer than the universe has ever existed so far. Oh, I know. You're just saying, like, sucking all the water out. Oh, yeah, I'm just so. saying. That, yeah, I'm just saying that, like, you know, that that it's it, it, that the energy in that it would take to power something, if we could turn mass into energy, would be just a drop in the ocean. Oh, yeah, it'd be a drop in the bucket absolutely so it turns out that um not all forms of energy are as efficient as black holes because black holes uh, store it with that energy the volume uh well, the, the weight the mass uh, uh it converts it all into energy uh, it, it evaporates in the form as we've covered in our three-part uh, black hole series um using hawking radiation which is a form of heat radiation but um so yeah that means that 50 milligrams of energy is uh per kiloton of uh, tmt uh, so it's about the weight of a mouse of energy could generate a kiloton of TNT if converted. Wow. The Hiroshima bomb, only 700 milligrams or about the weight of a Tylenol worth of energy was actually converted, uh, of mass was actually converted into energy. And Castle Bravo was, uh, by, uh, by comparison, was 670 kilograms of mass equivalent, which is about a dairy cow. And Tsar Bomba was 2,300 kilograms of mass equivalent or a small elephant. Wow. Tsar Bomba was ridiculous. Um, yeah. You know, to get an idea of the efficiency, what was the weight of the Tsar Bomba? So, yeah, the Tsar Bomba weighed about 27,000 kilograms. And uh, the fact that, it, you know, the fact that about 10% efficient means that it was an insanely efficient thermonuclear bomb. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, its blast yield was 50 to 80 megatons. Its blast radius was... So the ball of fire has a, would have a radius of about three and a half kilometers or like a little over a mile. Uh, from the center of the bomb, and that would just be the fireball itself. A uh, complete and total destruction of everything would uh, reach out to uh, 35 kilometers, or or about 20 miles from the center of the blast. Everything would be completely destroyed, raised to the ground. And not to mention that everything that would be killed by the massive fallout. Oh yeah, and uh, that did happen in you know that part of Russia. Um, so yeah, the test was done near the North Pole. Yeah, it was done in a, a testing place near the Arctic Sea, and it was a gigantic. Uh, it was a gigantic blast. Uh, I mean, uh, Millie hasn't covered this on her show, but it'd be the type of thing that she would cover on her show. Oh yeah, we should totally do an episode about the effects of it, as well as the Lucky Dragon Number Seven and Castle Bravo test. And oh, you could even do. I mean, there for all our listeners, there used to be a handheld nuclear weapon. Yes, there were multiple. There were experiments on nuclear hand grenades that couldn't be thrown like far enough, so they got rid of them. There was also the Davy Crockett, which is a surface-to-surface -surface missile that had nuclear uh, nuclear warhead in it that I've wanted to cover in an episode because it was by far one of the dumbest ideas ever. 
Yeah, basically you almost blow yourself up using it. Yeah, um, you couldn't actually get out of the uh, fallout radius. Oh, wow. Yeah. Makes it the perfect nuclear bomb. Actually, you know, you're going to die to use it. No, just kidding. No, there's many problems with that. So, yeah, I decided to uh, total up uh, the amount of nuclear tests done by various countries and how many uh, pounds of mass equivalent they would be. And uh, India has exploded about three kilograms uh, worth of um, matter uh, uh, equivalent or about 70 uh, kilotons. China, about 1136 kilograms. France, about 600 kilograms. The UK, about 400 kilograms, so about the weight of a cow each of those. Um, the United States, um, during the nuclear, nuclear test, exploded about 9,000 uh, kilograms uh, worth of uh, material, which is the size of, like, you know. So, yeah, the United States um, did about 9,100 kilograms worth of uh, energy equivalent explosions. And the USSR comes in number one uh, at 13,800 kilograms worth of uh, explosives, which is about the weight of Big Ben. And a sixth of that was Tsar Bomba. Yeah, a whole sixth of that was uh, Tsar Bomba. That's incredible. And uh, the total of all nuclear tests done has totaled up to about 25,000 kilograms worth of energy, uh, worth of matter converted into energy, or about the weight of any computer or a 17-foot round backyard ground, backyard pool. Wow. Not much. <laughs> not as much as, yeah, not as much as you'd think. So I guess we're lucky that backyard pools don't explode. <laughs> exactly. So how efficient are various fuel sources compared to black holes slash, you know, pure matter? So gasoline, um, it's about 10,000 calories per kilogram or 45.7 megajoules, which is more than 6.276 megajoules. The amount of calories in one kilogram of gasoline is how much Michael Phelps would burn uh, in a day of training uh, or competition or whatever. Uh, or about 10,000 calories, which is about four-thirds of a liter of gasoline or about a third of a gallon of gas, which there are days that I don't burn that in my car. And so if you do the same calculation, 45.7 megajoules per kilogram divided by the speed of light squared over a kilogram is equal to uh, 5.08 times to the negative tenth or 0.00000508% as efficient as pure energy. So definitely a lot more efficient, right? But yes. Yes. Now we're going to look at uranium, enriched uranium specifically. One kilogram of uh, uranium will generate 8.64 times 10 to the 13th joules per kilogram, which would power Greenland uh, for a month. So it takes 10, it would take 12 kilograms of uranium per year um, of, uh, to uh, power Greenland, which is not very much. So there's about somewhere around a milligram per kilogram of uranium in just the soil uh, itself. So, so it would take about 12 million pounds of just random rock uh, purified into uranium to uh, get that. But of course, there's ores that uh, generate a lot more uranium. But yeah, there are places where you can extract uranium, such as the Athabasca Basin, which contains um, uh, millions and millions of pounds of uranium in the form of U308, um, with an average grade of like, you know, somewhere around like, you know, 10 to 20%. So it doesn't take, so it, it, with this stuff, it only take um, uh, about, uh, oh, and also the, you do have a factor of 10 that you lose in, uh, converting regular uranium to enriched uranium. Uh, so that would mean that for that, that would, it would only take about 1,200 pounds worth of this uh, ore to power Greenland for a year. So yeah, that just gives you an example of how efficient uranium is. You know, a kilogram also is how many 360 people would eat in a lifetime or would power Albuquerque for six days. 
Um, so 60 kilograms would power Albuquerque per year. And the efficiency compared to um, matter itself is about one one thousandth as efficient as matter or um, 0.096%, um, which is uh, very, very efficient. I mean, if you look at all these other things, uh, I mean, this is one in, you know, because gasoline is well, about one two trillionth as efficient as pure energy. So this is one one thousandth. So it gives you an example of how much more efficient uranium is than uh, pure matter. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, and you could use these energy calculations and even specifically with human fat in other ways. But um, the, the long and short of it is that you could you could treat the the energy uh, that you receive uh, as being stored as fat. Um, and um, and yeah, that's honestly the whole concept of uh, losing weight uh, depends on this as well. Calories in, minus calories out, as some people say. Energy is something that can't be created or destroyed only moved around. It's also something that's needed to make any change between two components of any system. The question then naturally becomes, what are the limitations of moving energy around? Find out more when we cover this on the next episode of Breaking Math, where we discuss thermodynamics. I'm Sophia, and this has been Breaking Math. With me, we had on Ariana Luna Rosa. Thank you, Ariana. Thank you. And is there anything you'd like to plug, anything you want to say to our audience? No plugs. No mm. plugs, no words of wisdom. You don't have to. Say no to drugs. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Millie, um, uh, thank you for being on the show. Uh, would you like to plug anything? Yes. I would love to plug Nerd Forensics. Uh, anybody who's listening to Breaking Math right now that doesn't just spend their time listening to Math pod uh, Podcast, if you have any interest in art, history, movies, comic books, video games, I'm sure you'll find something that's a lot of fun on Nerd Forensics. And if you don't, send me an email at nerdforensics at gmail.com. Tell me what you would like me to do an episode about. Otherwise, I just want my audience to know I love them. Sounds great. And yeah, you could check that out anywhere. You, if, you, if you got this podcast, you could find another podcast. I, I don't know how to end this episode. I'm just looking at the cats over there. Mm -hmm.